we saw uh, last week how Genesis 1 and 2 attempts or seeks to give us a, a theological, I think is the best way to describe it, description of creation. The emphasis is on more theological realities, not so much on, say, scientific um, explanation. The writer isn't trying to describe how long things took to create or how many kind of days there were. He is more looking at who is behind everything and then how this who created, just with these word and then and then the why of the cosmos just delight and love and these kind of things and we were given a picture of creation as a kingdom in which where everything and everyone submits and lives in an experienced joyful relationship with the king it's very good and we also saw how that one of the functional and practical ways that God confirmed this was actually through a prohibition, a law, a limit on uh, humanity's authority uh, that sort of says, hey, don't reach out and desire for yourselves what is the sole priority and prerogative of God. The authority and wisdom to create systems of ethics and make moral judgments the priority to decide what advances life and what hinders life. You know, the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason for this prohibition is, A, you aren't qualified, you aren't actually God, you don't know everything there is to know. But B, so that humanity would see and, and know and experience that obedience leads to joy. That, 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 that staying in and under this law of this prohibition is a joyful, wonderful experience. To be under God's rule uh, with God as the good king in the Bible is always to enjoy his blessing. It's always pictured as the best way to live. God's original creation shows us a model uh, of a kingdom of creation as it was meant to be. And then as we turn from page two to page three of the story, the unimaginable takes place. What has to this point been a story of uh, creative solidarity, of order, of enjoyed presence, of the power and the peace of God is lost and replaced with decreation and relational disorder, creation and a kingdom now under sin, and it is not good. Genesis 3 is fundamentally about a kingdom perishing, a kingdom perished, about how the very good of creation and our delight and dependency in, in God, in the good king, uh, has been corrupted by sin. What theologians call and scholars call the fall. Adam and Eve are there. They are two historic, real people who function as the archetypes of humanity's disobedience. Their actions in the garden depict and represent and apply to all of humanity. They're not mythological or, or, or even merely symbolic. They are, as far as Jesus is concerned, as far as the New Testament authors are concerned, historic people in a historic event uh, in, in time and space. And they are placed into the Garden of Eden into this sanctuary in which Adam and Eve encounter God in a unique and privileged way. God is uniquely present here. 
The garden kind of functions like a temple, a place where God is uniquely encountered. And, and later on, uh, as the story of God's redemptive uh, grace and pursuit of humanity unfolds, the covenantal promise unfolds, uh, the garden would be uh, replicated in places like the tabernacle and, and the temple and ultimately by Jesus himself, who at the beginning of, of John's gospel you know, is described as the presence, the locus of God, the house of God, where the, where the presence of God is, is manifest. There they have a role of priestly guardians of the garden and cultivators of the sanctuary's environment. They are to protect and promote uh, this creation's decree that when everything and everyone submits and lives in an experienced joyful relationship to the creator's king, it's, it's very good. In the garden, we have God's people living in God's place, enjoying God's rule, reign and blessing. Where God walks with humanity, lives and where God walks with humanity and humanity lives faithfully, cultivating uh, his character and reproducing his creativity. Active faith is required. Doubt of God's word, doubt of God's character uh, as very good has no place in the garden. Indeed, it has no place anywhere in creation, but it's in the garden where humanity is on probation. For in the garden is the one prohibition. And fidelity and obedience entitle humanity to continue uh, to live eternally with God. A very good experience. Failure, though, disobedience, has been stated by God as inviting death and provoking God's wrath. The second act of, of the Genesis story begins by telling us that there is a challenge to the design and the boundaries of the creation set by God. There is someone who is rebelling against the order. And although not named here, he is the adversary of God and he is the adversary of humanity who would be identified as Satan. He originates in heaven, standing outside Earth's created natural order. He has become malevolent and he is wiser than humans, questioning divine matters. And he uses speech which was given to humanity to rule and subdue the earth to confuse humanity and bring them under his rule and subdue them to his um, ways of thinking, if you like. The serpent is the vessel of choice for this rebel who sneaks into the garden, uh, not as a threat, but as another created creature, one that is subject to humanity's rule and authority, he is crafty. And the word crafty uh, comes from the same word group as nakedness. And as we read this, we get a sense that Adam and Eve are vulnerable. With subtle guys, the adversary uh, cloaked in this creature's form probes uh, his superiors about the goodness and the truthfulness of their creator. After all, they are his priests. They are his royal image bearers. Surely they could clear up a few questions that he has. So perhaps pride becomes the petri dish of the heart in which the first uh, sin germinates. 
did God actually say that you cannot eat from any of the trees in the garden? And with this appearance of genuine theological conversation, Satan twists what God has said. Like he takes it from you can eat from every, you can eat from every tree to you can't eat from any of the trees. And he invites Eve into a discussion in which he will subvert her obedience to God and distort her perspective of God's prohibition and, and his provision. Derek Kidner in his commentary says that this question is both flattering, like it, it invites her in, asks her for her wisdom and her take on things, and it is disturbing because it doubts the truthfulness of God. It smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. It, the exaggeration that God has prohibited all the trees in the garden frames God as this harsh king. It's a, mis, it's a total misrepresentation of the truth. And it is just the bait to draw Eve into the conversation. Eve, like all good Christians, gets right at defending God like he needs her help. But in doing so, she exaggerates God's strictness and she overcorrects, adding a layer of prohibition. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve has many descendants who just love this kind of defense of becoming, as it were, more holy than God with more rules than God, to make sure that people don't overstep the original boundaries. Don't touch. Like the tree isn't the issue. The tree is actually good. There's nothing bad about this tree. It's a good tree. It's just off limits. You can climb it. You can look at it. Just don't reach out to take its fruit. Eve is the very first legalist. She overcorrects the error and she underplays God's raging generosity and provision. Ever just thought about that? I mean, this moment, this, about how unnecessarily excessive this picture of creation is. It's a picture of overabundance. There is all manner of plants and all manner of projects to sustain human life and creativity in humanity. God has not been strict. God has not been stingy in his creation. God is not a minimalist. You know, food doesn't need uh, flavor or aroma, right? But, but, it, but it has it. Nature doesn't need color or scent or sound, but it does. Procreation doesn't need enjoyment and delight, but, but it has it. Of all the ways that God could have sustained life on the planet, he chooses radical generosity and gratuitous provision and enjoyment. Why? Why all the teeming seas? Why all the landscapes that fill you with awe? Why the variety of food that make you go, hmm, that is good? What's the point? His glory and our delight. And Eve has underplayed them both. Eve has underplayed the goodness and the character of God rather than praise and promote. The serpent now rather boldly challenges the truthfulness of God and the sincerity of his command and conviction. You surely not die. He's going to do that. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent attacks the sincerity of God, making God out to be uh, holding humanity back, keeping uh, them from reaching their full potential. God is not actually good. He, he's insincere. He, he, he's hiding stuff from you. That's not a good God. That's a bad God. Free yourself from the limits. Acquire your own potential to determine what enhances life and what hinders it. Become wise on a divine level. Make this restrictive dependence on God redundant. It's, an out, it's as outrageous uh, as it is actually subtle. And again, Derek Kidner in his uh, commentary uh, describing it says, it's a lie big enough to reinterpret life and dynamic enough to redirect the flow of ambition and affection to be as God rather than to be for God, rather than to go after God for who he is. And now all that Eve and Adam can see is the one tree that has the restrictions over it. The radical, gratuitous uh, generosity and provision of the garden just shrinks as this one tree becomes this consuming focus. As priests and guardians of the garden, Adam and Eve should have recognized this misdirected desire and driven this intruder from the garden. Instead, they entertain him. Now the whole order of creation is disordered. Now nature is informing humanity, who then reinterprets God's words and acts in accordance with, with, with their own, with her own impressions, her own feelings over the instructions from God, making her over-desire of, of her own sort of imagined self-fulfillment the goal of creation. Failing to act in faith to God's word, she reaches to take and eat what seems to be another means of life. An act so simple to take and eat, but it introduced and embedded into humanity a condition um, that is so intoxicating and so blasphemous the desire for autonomy based on the concern that God is not good and cannot be trusted. Even Adam's decision gave relational priority to pragmatic values, aesthetic appearance. He saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, to sensual desires, and, and saw that the tree would be, was desired to make one wise. These things over and against God's word as to what is good, what leads to human flourishing and what hinders it. And there's Adam standing silently right beside his bride and he fails to jump in and fails to just say, pump the brakes and reframe this conversation with what is true, with what is good. He fails to bring God's character and word into their relationship to shape it and direct it. Instead, he listens to his wife's suggestions over God's commands. Now, I feel like I need to say this. 
This is not telling you that you should never listen to your wife's suggestions. That is not what's been described. If I did that, I'd be dead or worse. Instead, this is about listening to another person's uh, instructions over what you know to be true that God has said. And it's a disordering of the relational priorities. And as he does, this is what's so pathetic about it. He lets his wife step out in front of the bus and he follows her into the wreckage. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good, that his word and character cannot be trusted. And if you doubt his goodness, you will deny and ignore his word, leading to relational wreckage, poverty and death, the decreation of all that is good. Such a simple act in its undertaking, but so hard to undo in its remedying. It will take another gratuitous gift of grace and provision. God himself will have to taste and encounter wreckage, poverty and death. He will have to be decreated in order for these words, take and eat, to become the provision of salvation and new life. The brutality of the fall is painted in simplicity. The author does not describe the details of sin and what sin has done and will do. That actually that comes later on in the chapter. The, the rest of scripture bears witness to that. Indeed, chapters 4 and 5 describe the rapid escalation of what a kingdom perishing looks like. Murder is introduced and it defaces the value of the image bearer. Uh, polygamy is introduced and it defaces the value of marriage that was enshrined into this created ideal. And more and more relationships and, and creatures transgress the order and design of creation in rebellion and autonomy to God and to his people. And Tim will get into that a bit more when we get into next week. The desire for enhanced human experience apart from God uh, has not eventuated. Not the way they dreamed, not the way they hoped. They do see more, but the more they see with the, when their eyes are opened is not more beauty, is not more maturity, uh, not more advancement of the human state. No, now they see a familiar world perished, impoverished. What their forbidden state of being invites and results in is described by the author as nakedness, a sense of identity hitherto unknown. Nakedness describes uh, a being defenseless, being weak and humiliated. It leads to separation and alienation, awareness of guilt and shame and death of their intimacy and their spiritual vitality. And it is pathetically depicted in their attempt to hide behind fig leaves. In the beginning, before the fall, humans had a genuine choice to sin or not to sin. That freedom was lost after the fall. Now we are not free not to sin. The only thing we ever really do is choose how we will sin. And as heads of humanity... On the 
on the probation in the garden, Adam and Eve have now brought humanity under the curse of sin and with it the loss of blessing and closeness with God. But as tragic as this picture is, it is not without hope. That nakedness, the condition of sin is not a natural state of being, but an unnatural decreational one. And it hints to the potential of a creational God restoring what has been lost, which prepares us for humanity's need of justification and sanctification through another grace-filled covenant promise of redemption established with and through Jesus Christ, who is heaven's king and humanity's true head, will himself become naked, will himself taste death, so that we could once again be clothed with a new identity of blessing. We would expect such an act of rebellion and treason and disdain for the good gift that they had been given would be met with unlimited wrath. But God's first words to humanity have tones of grace. As God approaches with a question, in order to address what Adam and Eve have done, God must draw them out, not drive them out of hiding. God is depicted as walking in the garden in the cool of the day. To walk is to do life, to share ambitions, to enjoy creation together. Where is Adam? Where is the one created in God's image? Where is the one who delighted in the embrace and the intimacy of his wife? Where is the one made to enjoy the rest and the peace of the kingdom and delight in praise of his creator? Where is Adam? Humanity is depicted as hiding from the presence of God, concealing themselves from each other because they are afraid of God due to the new identity of nakedness. Fear has replaced faith. The trees in the garden which represented their freedom have now become the means of covering up and hiding behind the garden is no longer a theme, a theme park, but it has become a graveyard. The question by God is not due to lack of knowledge or awareness, but rather stands as continued proof of covenantal love. That is an unwillingness to abandon the object of that love, even when that love fails to achieve the desired end. Where are you is an invitation back. But Adam can now only speak through his new reality his, of fear. And God comes again with another question and offers an opportunity to confess. Who told you? D did you eat? But all that comes from Adam is blame shifting and leadership negation. That woman that you gave to be here with me. Now the helper, now the, the, the delight by his side is cast as a hindrance. Sin has, in, has distorted the most joyous and intimate of relationships. The woman likewise points her finger at the creature that God gave them to rule over. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And all of the peace of the garden is thrown into chaos as sin corrupts and kills relationships with God and with each other. Here is the new decaying beginning viewing God no longer viewing God sorry as a friend to walk with but is replaced with viewing him as an enemy to hide from trust is replaced with fear love is replaced with indifference and even hatred murder will follow 
Intimacy with God replaced with alienation and separation. Freedom to obey God is replaced with enslavement to sin. Honesty replaced with lying and deceit. Self-sacrifice replaced with self-centeredness. Peace replaced with restlessness. Responsibility replaced with blaming. And authority replaced with hiding. Here is why we experience the world the way we do. And it is not natural, nor is it undoable, humanly speaking. This is a kingdom impoverished, but not a kingdom utterly lost. Sin and the fall will not have the final say. Even in a fallen garden, even in a broken creation, God is still sovereign and his character and his goodness remain. Into the chaos, God pronounces his judgment and speaks a promise. Satan, who instigated this evil, doesn't get asked a question or given opportunity to explain. He is only given a sentence. That consignment to dust does not mean that the serpent once walked, but rather depicts the shame and the judgment, the ongoing reality of the curse. This is not a new existence, you know, one without legs, but rather this is a new significance. There is no envisaged hope for the one who plunged creation into chaos. He is eternally a depiction of where sin leads to shame, to eating dust, to humility. There is no one. Thank you, Sue. There is more than the serpent being addressed here uh, that is borne out in the rest of God's judgment. The days of the serpent are numbered. Nevertheless, he will remain to test the fidelity of each successive generation of covenantal people. Those descendants who, who like Eve, which we see later on, we won't get there, but Eve encounters the grace, the restorative grace of God back into relationship with God towards fallen and sinful people turn. And they turn with affection from Satan's lies to God's redeeming grace. It's an epic struggle that will be humanity's story as two types of offspring that will be at odds with each other. Those who continue in rebellion against God and those whose hearts, as I said, are warm with affection for God, with love. The seed of the serpent is not more snakes, but more who will follow the lies of the serpent and reproduce unbelief in creation in the world. The seed of the woman refers not merely to biological descendants, but to those who, like Eve, have their hearts and their affections restored with spiritual propensity towards God. They seek to live in obedience and faith with God. A cosmic conflict will rage. But God speaks the first gospel into this graveyard in verse 15 when he promises that a particular offspring of the woman, a seed, will be a great snake crusher, one to conquer Satan and reclaim the kingdom lost. There is significance in this, that it will be the seed of a woman and not of a man. For the great reclaimer of creation will not be like the first Adam. His origins will be divine. For only one with the power of creation can undo the decreation of sin and deliver the serpent's final defeat 
under the wounded heel of a Messiah. And yet, he will be all that the first Adam failed to be, the true head of humanity, who in his humanity willingly obeys, gloriously displays and happily enjoys the rule of the creator king. And only the New Testament unmasks both figures. Finally, it fully unmasks both figures as Paul in Romans 16 and John and Revelation 19 identify the figure behind the serpent and indeed all uh, beasts and all beings that oppose God and his people as being Satan himself. And it is the New Testament writers who identify Jesus as the long-awaited promised seed, the descendant of Eve, who would redeem this kingdom perished. Genesis prepares us for a future king, a future true Adam, who would create a new community in which the rule and the reign of sin is defeated and the choice to live in willful obedience renewed, renewed authenticity, and delight-filled praise and promotion of God as good and trustworthy, restored. But God is still sincere. His word still stands and sin must be dealt with. The gospel writer John catches the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It will take nothing less than the cross and the resurrection to crush Satan and remove sin. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the descendant of Eve, the true head of humanity, will himself become alienated from God will himself become naked will taste death in our place so that we in renewed trust and faith to God's word and promise might again taste and have the blessing of the garden restored let's pray well we thank you for this um this description of how it is that we came to be, how it is that that we uh, encounter the brokenness in the world, the brokenness in us. But we thank you that in this story is this word of hope, that this condition is not natural, uh, though it is not something we can cure, but it is something that a creative God can come and remake and renew. And the, the gospel story, the good news is that that is what Jesus has done. He has come to recreate and make new people and bring them into a new kingdom. And we thank you for this and we give you praise for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.